Welcome to episode six of the Known Pleasures podcast. Once again, it's Patrick, Mark and Graham discussing the music of the post-punk slash new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s. And I do believe it is my turn to introduce the subject of today's podcast. The 80s, unlike any other decade, started with music being created on instruments that had never before existed. Sure, the Moog and Mellotron had appeared in the late 60s, but by the turn of the next decade, drum machines, sequences, analog and digital keyboards began to change the musical landscape forever. And this electronic music went from being an underground curiosity to a commercial powerhouse, thanks in large part to today's featured artist, Gary Newman. Starting as the bleached blonde frontman for the punk band Chubai Army, he went on to produce some of the most iconic synth-based pop songs of the late 70s and early 80s. And although his time in the sun came and went in the blink of a cold robotic eye, he continues to influence artists as diverse as Nine Inch Nails, Foo Fighters, Basement Jacks and Kanye West. And while Mark and I loved and admired Gary Newman, I'm now going to pass over to Patrick, who was absolutely obsessed. Um, I don't know whether I'm overselling that. Is that, is that, is that there, was, there was a bit of obsession, yes. Besotted yes. is yes. a good word. Besotted. <laughs> well, come 1979 and a young lad from Ballarat, Australia, still hadn't quite found himself musically. <laughs> <laughs> and I should he, play some piano music. He'd, he'd, heard, he'd heard some post-punk music that he liked very much. He loved some of it. But it was maybe a little abrasive. It wasn't. It, it, it it's a little rude. Yeah. A little in, impolite. Mm. <laughs> it lacked couth. <laughs> so he hadn't quite found the sound that really resonated with him. And I'll change to first person now because it's. Just, Are you talking about yourself? I'm <laughs> talking about me. Uh, I happened to be in England on a family holiday in 1979, and I was at my cousin's house watching Top of the Pops, and as the program progressed. There was a bit of ring my bell happening. Was a bit of... <laughs> Is that a euphemism? <laughs> <There> was... <laughs> Hello, darling, ring my bell. <laughs> there was, you'd have to ask Anita Ward about that. Uh, there was a bit of Rod Stewart and, you know, the kind of classic late 70s pop and it was a kind of very safe, anodyne, mainstream kind of show mm. with, you know, very family-friendly bands playing, that, that kind of thing. And then they got to the number one single for the week, last song on the show, and I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, what's really happening in England now? You know, what's what's really big? Mm. And then Chiboy Army, Our Friends Electric started and I'd just never heard anything like it in my life. People with more of a music background than I had as a youthful teenager would have seen the kind of Bowie influences and would have mm. known a bit about the influences of early Ultravox albums. But to me, it just sounded absolutely like out of the blue. And the, the ELO album. The ELO album, right. yes. Very good. <laughs> um, and at the end of the four minutes, because they, they wouldn't have played all five minutes, 18 seconds of it, it kind of <laughs> faded you know out this. pretty quickly. <laughs> at the end of that four minutes, I felt transformed because the melancholy sounds, melancholy but, but driving sounds of the song, Gary's cold but plaintive vocal just had a kind of emotional core to it that, that really kind of struck mm. me. And from, from then on I became a, a bit of a Numenoid. A Numenoid, wow. A Numenoid. So I kind of listened to all the Gary Newman stuff that I could and it was just a bit of a turning point for me and I ended up becoming a synthesizer player as a result, probably a direct result of having heard that song on that day. I mean, it wasn't as if I was never going to hear that song, mm. uh, you know, back in Australia. But, but uh, yeah, so it was a real turning point for oh, me. Cause, cause so, it, there was electronic music before that, we had Kraftwerk. I remember hearing uh, Autobahn on the radio. Yeah. And there was uh, Tangerine Dream and Can. Mm. Oh, I don't know, Vangelis, people like that. Plenty Pop, of popcorn yeah. music. Yeah, yeah. popcorn. Jean-Michel Jarre had a <laughs> few hits out there. Yeah. Mm, but um, mainly popcorn. Pop, popcorn was the uh, the Moog synthesizer's big hit in Australia, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. it, was, it was a hit here more than anywhere, apparently. Right, okay. But, yeah, I remember hearing electronic music, but it wasn't until I saw Gary Newman that you kind of felt a change was happening because um, obviously listeners of this podcast wouldn't know what we were listening to up until that point. Yeah. And it was really, um, what was the song you heard? Was it uh, was, was Our Friends Electric the first song of that you heard? That was probably the first song I heard as well. Right. And I thought it was absolutely amazing. So much so that I bought the album for my brother 
because my brother liked it as well. Right. And I wound up buying him that album and the next one. And um, it wasn't until I bought him the next album that I realized he wasn't that big a fan after all. But consequently, <laughs> I kept... He actually I, resented it. Yes, he said, stop buying me these albums. <laughs> but I continued to listen to him. And uh, I think I wound up keeping those albums <laughs> right. that I bought my brother for his birthday. Mark, what was your first exposure to Chubayami well, or Gary Newman? We were talking about this earlier and um, my good friend Curtis had his hands on a copy of the first album, which was called Chubayami, I believe, from about 78 with the strange alien sort of head of Gary on the front, white cover. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of exposed to it earlier, I suppose, than you guys. Uh, maybe not much much earlier, yeah, but I no, was that, familiar yeah. with that album before yeah. our Friends Electric came out. Yeah. Uh, and he wasn't doing anything that interesting on it. It was kind of like pretty standard stuff, you know, mm. a bit of guitar, a bit of synth. There was definitely some synth on there, but nothing that you'd yeah, sort of yeah. go, well, this is really groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the real... Revelation came with that second album mm, yeah, um, yeah. when he ditched the guitars for the most part, I suppose, would you say? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the story goes, I think, well, we're all familiar with it, us three anyway, that he was in the studio recording uh, that first album and uh, somebody had left a, a mini Moog there or something. Yep. A previous artist had been using some, some prog rock band probably. And uh, the record company was sending someone around to pick it up and they um, hadn't picked it up. So he started playing around with it and started playing the guitar parts on that instead. Yeah. And ended up with those sort of riffs being played on something like that instead of the guitar and went, this is great and why is no one doing this? Yeah, yeah. And inadvertently found a way out of the uh, punk situation that he'd set up for himself. He was trying to get a record deal with his band, as you said, a, a bleach blonde kind of not thrashy, but the usual sort of standard yep. three or four yep. chord stuff and um, trying to get a record deal and not having a great deal of success. So yep. Um, yep. managed to find a way out of it. But I, I would say that something that he did that no one else did with that instrument was to make it kind of cold yep. and um, almost dissonant and, and distant. It wasn't a happy use mm. of it. It wasn't something going, this is the future. Well, it was this is the future, but it's a sad, cold, depressing place. Was yes. the way Gary dystopian? Yes, dystopian the way Gary yeah. sold it, um, <laughs> coupled with his singing style, which is sort of quite—I don't know what you'd call it. He, he can sing, but his voice is quite strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there was a lot of emotion there. No, yeah, and was... quite sort of distant and cold, yeah. and that yeah. was his whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, look, maybe we should talk about how that that band got together in the first place and how he came to, to find himself with a number one hit. Yeah, yeah. He was born in 1958 and had a, like a classic suburban upbringing and his parents bought him like a fantastic guitar when he was really young. They in kind London of in, this in, is? Indulged him. In London we're talking about? Yes, yep. that's right, in Staines. Oh. So not the West Staines Massive as uh, Ali G. Oh, yes. <laughs> Immortalised later on. <laughs> this, was, this was Central Staines. But uh, Gary always loved music and always wanted to be a pop star and was obsessed with Mark Bolan and Bowie. And he got into covers bands, playing at parties and weddings and stuff. Just playing guitar, playing like tire, tire yellow ribbon and just, like, if you can imagine, Gary Newman <laughs> playing at a wedding. I'd love to hear him do that. <laughs> it would be quite something. And he, he was in and out of a couple of bands and then he ended up joining a short-lived band with a fellow called Paul Gardner who played bass and they kind of needed a drummer and Gary's Uncle Gerald played the drums and... <laughs> So it was a real family affair, wasn't it? Yeah. So Gary's uncle Gerald, who was known by the name of Jess, Jess Lydiard, came in and you know started playing drums, and they, as a trio, started doing demos and stuff. And that was the ensemble that went into the studio to record what became the self-titled first album with the big Gary head. The Gary face on the cover. It was a drawing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's right. And yeah. that was on Beggar's Banquet, which was a yep. kind of yeah. a proto indie label of the time. Yeah, yeah. Had. Bauhaus and uh, a few other people like yeah, that from yeah. memory. But, but it was um, it, it was quite something to be playing in a band with your Uncle Gerald mm. and Uncle Gerald stayed on. He played drums on Our Friends Electric. So, you know, it was it was really an extraordinary. He extraordinary. mustn't have been too much older than Gary. No, he was seven years older. Right, okay. Yeah, he played a bit of drums. Anyway, he worked at the local Avis rent-a-car, uh, you know, centre. Oh, so transport wasn't a problem for them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Good point. That's where the hit cars came from. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> mm, yes, it was product placement. He, he was writing budget jingles at the time. <laughs> well, he did write jingles. So he wrote a jingle for Lee Cooper Jeans before he became a oh, star really? at all. 
Yeah, that was. Um, I can't stand these people who sell out and write radio jingles. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, <laughs> he, How do they sleep at night? <laughs> <don't know. laughs> well, he he sold out before he had any credibility. Anything anyway. to sell. Yeah. yeah. So then they went into the studio to record that first album that we're talking about. So the self-titled one. Are you Brand- familiar with that album now? Yeah. I guess you are. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah, would, how I, would you characterize it? Well, I heard it probably after I heard Pleasure Principle. So to go forward a little bit, but I heard the first Gary Newman or Army album after I'd heard the third one, so it was a weird kind of mm. chronology, but I didn't think much of it at all when I first heard it because it just seemed rough and raw and not, not very good and there was a song with acoustic guitars in it and which completely didn't fit my sensibilities at the time. Mm. But listening to it again in the last you know couple of weeks, I was really impressed by it and I think it's a really kind of solid, snappy, post-punk album with some good songs on it and, yeah, kind of quite promising. Is it, would you call it a transitional album between yeah. punk and what, what, what he eventually became? Yeah, well, I think courtesy of what Mark was saying about Gary's discovery of the synthesizer when they went in to record that album, mm. they'd done a couple of singles, I think, which were pretty punky, guitar-y yeah. songs. And to come across the Mini Moog synth Mm. on I think the first day recording the debut album was was an extraordinary piece of luck and as Gary tells the story it so happened that the synthesizer was set on you know like a preset sound that mm. was ready to go so it's, so he he hit a note and it made the room shake <laughs> it was like a <laughs> kind of thing and uh, yeah, Gary says that, you know, it was a miracle that it was mm. that sound rather than a like yeah. some kind of really kind of wonky, tinny sounding kind of thing. So, yeah, he's kind of thanked his lucky stars. It's just an amazing story to me to think that he walks into a, a studio to record a particular thing and <laughs> just by a stroke of luck there's a, a Moog synthesizer what was left there wasn't mm, it? Yeah. yeah. And he started playing it and it changed his whole outlook on, on music. It changed the way he, he wrote songs I guess. It yeah, changed yeah. so much. It'd be like, I don't know, imagine if Nirvana were a folk band yeah. on their first day of recording they went in and they discovered a distortion pedal <laughs> and then he just Set started to 11. Yeah, he said to 11. And he's like, guys, I think we're onto something here, you know. Yeah, yeah. Put the acoustic guitars away. This is it. <laughs> For a genre, almost a genre to be created, like almost accidentally, I think is amazing. And no one else took the ball and ran with it the way that Gary did. I mean, these synthesizers existed at the time, mm. but no one apart from, well, I guess there were a few bands, Human League and, and so on, who were doing all electronic albums, but, but no one had really kind of worked with it in in the way that uh, Gary did to kind of popularise it, to, to write pop songs. Mm, yeah, to write pop songs, yeah. They were being used as filler, maybe experimental bands yeah. were using them. Um, even A-list artists were you know, putting some odd, even Paul McCartney and Wings were, yeah, yeah. would put something in the background of a song. Yeah. But the synths weren't driving the songs. Yeah, yeah. Well, the synths were the stars of, of Gary Newman's stuff, from the, yeah. mm. more or less from the start. The one thing I will say is going back and listening to those albums, the songs are pretty pedestrian songs. They're pretty basic yeah. two-chord, three-chord yeah. yeah. sort of yeah. things. He's not doing anything that unusual apart from singing in this strange voice about mm. strange subjects yeah. and the sounds of what he's doing. Yeah. If you if you stripped all those songs back and said play them on a guitar, you'd go, they're pretty, yeah, but these are good songs. They're not great songs. They're mundane for a yeah. lot of it, but he's made them sound like the future or something yeah. completely different, which goes to a lot of what we're talking about. The production and the way the music was presented yeah. is 80% of it, of yeah. his and, success anyway. And certainly that first album in particular, the rhythm section of a fairly rock and roll drummer Mm. and the bass player isn't doing anything too extraordinary either. So it entirely relies on what Gary is doing Mm. to give it any kind of individuality. And that first album doesn't have a huge amount of individuality, but as you say, courtesy of the vocals and a couple of synthy type things and just the general attitude, Mm. the lyrics and, and so on. Yeah, it does feel fresh to me listening to it. I think the album split between what you'd call standard post punk. Trying to find a way out of punk is probably a better way to describe it. And what he would do in the future because Gary was an avowed punk, used to go to these clubs, used to hang out there, you know, says he got chased down the street, beaten up, the standard sort of stuff that punks had to deal with in in the uh, late 70s. So he was obviously coming from that starting point but found accidentally a way out of it and invented something completely unique. Yep. Yep. And of his own, which is, uh, as we said, pretty pretty fortuitous and a bit of a fluke in many ways. Uh, and Graham, uh, you were familiar with the first album? I did hear it at the time, but it, it wasn't until the other two albums that I really came on board. Um, like you, re- listened to it recently. 
and um, I really liked it. I noticed that there's a song on there called The Dream Police. The Dream Did that predate? Um, Would have predated the cheap trick? the cheap trick song. Yes, that mm. was about 1980, I think. Yeah, oh, right? it was later, okay. wasn't it? Yeah, so that may be a coincidence. Or yeah, not. I like that. There's a song called "Something's Something's in the House" that I really liked. Every day I die. Yeah, um, I quite like Joe the Waiter. Yeah, yeah. Strangely, yeah, that was uh, like <laughs> basically an an acoustic track, yeah. and I, it was yeah, it's a, it's a really nifty little number. Mm. Now that I've overcome in later years my aversion to the acoustic guitar. <laughs> it had to happen. Well, that, that came out in 78, mid-78, mid thereabouts, I think. Yeah, uh, I think it was didn't, to, do a, didn't do a great deal. Uh, yeah, I think it came out maybe like October, November-ish, 78. Oh, okay. And then he, Gary kind of basically went straight into the studio and within six months, Replicas was ready to go. Featuring Gary standing on the cover, bleached hair, staring mournfully through a at window. At a bare light bulb. At a light bulb. With his reflection. Yes. In cr- the window with a park downstairs. Called the park. Was it the park? It says the park. Okay. In case you're not sure what it is. <laughs> and he's got his black shirt on, black tie or dark clothing. It's all very, yeah, alienating. So when he, go- when he says down in the park, that's where he's going. Can you see his friend called Five? Not from that vantage point. Okay. No, but he must be down there somewhere. Um, yeah, which which features, obviously, as you were just talking about, the uh, hit single Our Friends Electric. Our Friends Electric and Down in the Park were the two uh, big ones. But um, Was Down in the Park a single? I don't know whether it was it a was, single, but, but it's, yeah, everyone it was, seems to it, know it. It came out before Our Friends Electric and flopped. Oh, okay. But he did later describe it in a conversation with um, the Australian musician James Freud as... His first classic. His first classic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which uh, James Freud wrote about in, in, in James's autobiography, <laughs> t- talking about, uh, yeah, J- Gary said to James, well, I wrote my first classic when I was 19. Gary said that to James Freud. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. As reported by, by James. Yeah. So, so we, we should, uh, was James Freud on the scene at this point? We should. Uh, uh, a bit later on. A bit later. Yeah, that was right. in 1980. We can, we can come, yeah. come to that. We yeah, can around come about to him. The, the telecon. Oh, yeah, so not until like the, later. Okay. Yeah. okay. But when you look at his album titles, like Me, I Disconnect From You, he was really playing up that image of being robotic and cold and yep. removed yep. and all that sort of thing, which well, was, um, I mean, it was kind of a nice thing for him to latch onto, I guess, because there was no one else that was really being like that. Yeah. We had a decade of people trying to convey their humanity and he was sort of removing himself from it. But it was it was it was really good. I, I I used to play this album a lot. It was a song called "You Are in My Vision." Yeah, which it's very much a guitar player's song. At the time, I remember my band were playing it, and um, to play it without synths and without keyboards and things, it's actually still a really good song. It's, right. it's kind of like a, a rock song that he probably would have played with his punk band early on. Yeah, but yeah. he sort of refashioned it into into being something a bit more electronic. But yeah, one of my favourites. I understand that the replicas concept was about, I think, machines gradually taking over from humans, that sort of idea. So right. that's where Our Friends Electric comes in and, and basically machines were able to provide whatever services you wanted them to provide, whether they were sexual favours or a game of chess. and Or both. And they, they took the form. They took yeah. the form of men in long coats and grey hats smoking cigarettes and coming around to your house and, you know, doing whatever you wanted. So, that so they're was, all men. There were no Mac were, women? As I have heard it, uh, only men have been mentioned, but presumably there would be women in long coats and grey hats smoking cigarettes as well, you'd mm. think. Well, you'd hope so. <laughs> you'd hope there'd be a fair employment opportunity there for yeah, Mac yeah. men and women. Yeah. Well, yeah, affirmative action, I think. Mm. <laughs> Diversity, I mm. think is the term yeah. we're looking for. Yeah, no, no for sure. Sure. So, and it was just extraordinary that uh, that that album was was so huge compared to the previous album, which had only come out six months earlier. So, mm. the first album I, I think had sold maybe ten thousand copies and had done kind of okay, but I I don't think it even got in the charts initially. But then Replicas came out and went to number one, and yeah, suddenly he was absolutely massive. Mm, he was number one here too, I think. I think he might have been. It was yeah. at least top ten. I mean, it was a strange. It was a hit here. I know yeah, that. Yeah. 
um, because he was able to tour not too long after that. Mm. <laughs> True. Yeah. So, but it was actually 1980. It wasn't 1979, Mark. <laughs> Why do you say that, Graham? Ah, is this is this part of a continuing discussion that the two of you are having on the it subject? Is, it chance? is. There's uh, Mark and I have had a bit of a fallout about this. <laughs> Another one. I, I insist that. Um, well, you insist with the aid of facts <laughs> that, that the internet has proven you correct. Okay. It's hard for me to argue with, mm. but I argue I will. <laughs> this is fake news. Your memory beats facts every day of the That's week. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Now, I'm sure that uh, Gary Newman toured Australia in 1980 and we saw him a week after Boomtown Boomtown Rats Rats. or before Boomtown Rats. It was before the Boomtown Rats. I remember that much. Okay. I don't have the figures on me at the moment, but I'm sure it was 1980. uh, Your version of the story, Graham, is ruining the timeline. Is it? Hmm. Oh, okay. Because we're in... Okay, we're, well, well let, let, let's go with uh, Mark's, we're, we're Mark's cur- version. <laughs> we're, we're currently in July 1979 and yeah. suddenly it's a whole different decade in oh, Graemland. Okay. okay, sorry. I, well, can't, well, I can't wait to start talking about seeing him live in Brisbane's Festival. Well, we, we would like to, to work these things along the lines of what you were doing for a living when these things happen. <laughs> <laughs> so we know when the police toured, you're a pool attendant. Yeah, let's, oh, let's forget attendant. the pleasure principle. I want to hear what Graham was doing for a living a year later. What were you doing when Replicas came out? When Replicas came out, I was, a, um, I was working at a place called Tilling Timber. I, I worked at a timber yard and uh, I just basically moved did you, timber what, did from you one place to another. did you tote timber? Tote? Yes. No. Did, no? We tilled. You tilled the timber? <laughs> Why don't no. you? No, you tote bales. Oh, yeah. We tote that barge. And and you lift, lift that bale. bale. Okay. So what What? What were you, what was your typical day at the lumberyard involved? <laughs> well, when I wasn't listening to Gary Newman, just keeping us on topic. What did you do first thing in the morning when you arrived? I basically, uh, when the, when the uh, wood came in, it came in all pre-packaged. And I used to have to take the wood and put it in specific sections. And there were long planks of, I don't know why we're talking about this, <laughs> there were long planks of panelling and then customers would walk around and say, yeah, I'll have three metres of that, four metres of that, and I used to have to get it for them. And this is all with the sounds of our friend Electric our friends, resonating. Yeah, resonating. The, the, the dystopian world hadn't, hadn't reached the timber yard no. in, in Brisbane. But basically the, uh, the electronic music that I was listening to didn't mesh well with the, uh, with the surroundings of the timber with yard. With the woodiness of the timber yeah, yard. Yes. So, so one of them had to go. One of them had to go and the timber yard went, I think. <laughs> I, I was only there for three months. It doesn't, doesn't conjure up a cold dystopian future. <laughs> It, 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 it was nice. It was a nice warm. Depending on future. the splinters. <laughs> That's right. There were splinters. Actually, I had to wear gloves. Gloves. I had to wear gloves. I think gloves are what you put your gloves in <laughs> to protect them. <laughs> Pass me my gloves. Um, so the pleasure let, let principle just, yeah, was I'm the now, next album. I'm still talking about oh, okay. uh, replicas. Oh, replicas. Okay, yeah. Um, the Philip K. Dick inspiration right, apparently yeah. was was a big thing for Gary. Yeah, yeah. Now, how far back this went? This is what I'd be interested to, to ask you, Patrick. How how deep was his fascination with this kind of android alien world? Um, I don't know, to, to be honest. Um, I mean, I know he was he he was big on. Um, yeah, Philip K. Dick and what are uh, Ballard and uh, Ballard. Burroughs and so he was presumably reading all of this stuff and immersing himself in this and yeah, well, well, he used to read Burroughs's books and just kind of get um, snatches of lyrics from them, even though, as Gary himself claimed, I had no idea what the books were about. <laughs> but, right. but, he, but he liked kind of he liked the sound of the language okay. that Burroughs w- was using. It was so, a bit of a fashion at the time, though. That's what the yeah. other thing I was going to say. Um, and Blade Runner came out a few years after mm. this, but there was a kind of fascination with this cold future, possibly set in space, or you know, it was a bit of a science fiction theme. Yeah, yeah, a yep. loose science fiction theme, as I as I understand it, running through a lot of the stuff that he was doing, which was you know, there were different people doing these sorts yep. of things at yep. the time, but nobody was marrying all of it together. No, no, the no. way he was. I mean, the song um, uh, "Our Friends Electric" is. It's quite a strange song. I mean, as you said, to go to number one, yeah. if you yeah. listen to it again now, you'd sort of go, well, I don't know where that fits in with anything else. Yeah, absolutely. The sound of it, the concept of what the hell he's doing, none of it really makes any sense. No, it's got no chorus. No. It goes for like five, nearly five and a half minutes. It contains two, spo- two spoken word monologues. Mm. Um that's right. It's, it's the Bohemian Rhapsody of its day. <laughs> it is. Completely it is, unlikely. 
I wonder what the record company thought, whether they were keen on releasing it as a single. Yeah, I think I think they did really like it when, when they heard it, yeah, yeah. Mm. But I think they were disappointed that a song that was maybe more, slightly more obviously commercial, like Down in the Park... But see, I wouldn't have thought that was particularly yeah. commercial either. That's a strange song as well. I mean, it's an amazing. To me, that's my favourite of all his yeah. songs to this day. But, um, but at least none it does, of them are obvious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but at least it does contain the words, like the title of the song, a few times mm. in Rather the song, than once. Which, which our friends electric doesn't. Well, you yeah. know, just the once. Yeah. But uh, one of the extraordinary things I think about our friends electric is that it is this, as as we've been talking about, this this kind of cold, robotic, d- dystopian kind of song but at the same time the the kind of spoken word stuff is really quite kind of heartfelt and sort of plaintive so mm, yeah. um, i mean the second monologue is uh you know so i won't say the whole thing quite, but quite some of it i find out the reason for, for the, the phone, phone calls, calls and, smiles, and smiles and it hurts and i'm lonely and i should never have tried mm. but what's I'm, the last thing he says uh, it hurts and i'm lonely but, but and I should never have tried. I don't think I'm. Um, but the, no, the last thing in the, the monologue the is I don't think I'm the, relating to you or something. Oh, I don't think I meant I, anything to you. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think I meant anything to yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. That, I remember that being very sad. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. You you see, it meant everything to me. I think might might be the last line of the of the second one. But um, so it is like this. He's kind of pouring his heart out, and which mm. is a pretty full on thing for someone who's you know mm. twenty twenty one years old to have come up with that and to kind of marry that with the Android image, I yeah. think is a really clever thing to do if it was clinical and a really kind of quite poignant thing to do if it wasn't. Mm. Well, I think it was because the song titles on the album include things like Me, I Disconnect From yeah. You, I Nearly Married a Human, which sounds like a comedy show these days, <laughs> Third Rock From The Sun, um, whatever. When the machines rock, um, you know, they're all quite sort of, you know, there's a theme there, obviously. Yeah, 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 he, yeah. He's obviously down in it and he's, you know, mm. wherever it is, he's in it. Yeah. But he, he, must have, he must have known, like, once he started producing this electronic music, when he came to writing lyrics, he knew which way to go sort of thing. It was I think all- he had a vision. That's what yeah. I'm saying. It's what makes him unique is that mm. he actually had a complete package because the songs, I, I maintain the songs are fairly standard songs yeah. when you strip yeah. them back. The way that he self-produced this stuff, the way he yeah. played it, produced it, lyrics that he provided and sang it gives yeah, it yeah. a complete package that yeah. there really isn't anything to compare to. No. Whether yeah. you like it or not, it's irrelevant, but you know yeah. a Gary yeah. Newman song yeah. when you hear it. Yeah. And you did, as you said, you never heard anything like it before. And one of the classic things about Gary Newman, and this is beyond the first two albums, but there was no Svengali figure. There was no one influencing him. He was just, he, he kind mm. of basically seemed to have come up with all this stuff almost entirely by himself. Mm. I mean, Obviously, with the influence of well, Uncle Jess, and whatever else. So, Uncle Jess was involved. Yeah, <laughs> Uncle Jess, yeah. <laughs> he had the family there. <laughs> Uncle Jess. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Jess, by the way, these days plays in a like a blues-type band called Brook and the Badgers who are available for hire. Excellent. Oh, really? I've the been Thames, looking for someone. Thames Valley region in uh, England. Oh, so check out the good. website. So it's a bit of a conversation stopper, but shall we yeah. move on to Pleasure Prince? No, I thought that was good. I was just thinking that there is some old guy out there. Sorry, Brock, Brock and the Badgers. There is some old guy out there who played drums on Our Friends Electric. That's pretty cool in, in yeah. my books, you know. It's yeah. not a particularly difficult beat. I mean, you could probably play it. Well, it's not about being difficult. It's just the fact that, I mean, you know. It's it's a yeah. good good line at parties, certainly yeah. if you want to meet girls. <laughs> meet girls. <laughs> I don't think he's trying to meet girls at this point in his life. But, what, uh, do you think old people are not interested in meeting girls, Graham? I find <laughs> that hard to believe. <laughs> For you, Graham. <laughs> Okay, I'm cutting this bit out. <laughs> <laughs> you are not cutting this bit out. No, that's that's gold. Um, so yeah, we, we we have our um, replicas album, and less six months or so later, yes. Gary decides to go the full solo. There's no more Gary Newman and Tubeway Army. It's now just Gary Newman. Yeah, yeah. Did, did he have Bang. a falling out with the rest and, of the band? Well, to uh, a degree, he did. He did ditch a few people, didn't he? Yeah, but uh, kept Paul Gardner on bass, got a new, got drummer, a new drummer in because um, uh, Uncle Jess didn't want to do the touring thing. He felt like he was like a little bit too old, which is pretty funny for someone who was in his late 20s, but, you know, mm. that was <laughs> people made more sensible decisions in those days. Mm. Yeah, so a couple of, of new players and Billy Curry from Ultravox came in to play some keyboards and electric violin, I think, on a couple of tracks on Pleasure Principle. But Pleasure oh, Principle nice. came out, I think, five months after Replicas. In September so, 79, uh, yeah, I believe and this, it came and out. this was six months or f- five or six months after Replicas was five or six months after the first album. So basically, mm. Gary had three albums in 10 months. 
which is just it's amazing, isn't it? Astounding. And mm. each of them was quite a substantial creative leap from the previous one. Mm. Well, the other interesting thing is that this went straight to number one as well. Yeah, yeah. So the guys had two number one hit albums doing something quite bizarre. Yeah, yeah. And presumably a lot of people didn't like as as much as a lot of people did like, but it certainly stood alone. There was nothing else like no, this no, going no, on right. at the time. Uh, was Cars the first single off it? I was just going to say the reason why this was so big was probably because of Cars. Yeah, that's right. And uh, one of one of the peculiarities of of Gary having released three albums in, in such in such a short period of time is that all three were in the top twenty of the album charts at the same time. Right, they in, reissued in, the in first September '79, hmm. like within the, like the first month or so after the Pleasure Principle came out. Three albums in in the top twenty, which is very kind of Beatles esque. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking about this last night. Who has had three albums go to number one in succession? And you'd almost say debut albums, not quite, but. I can't think of anybody that's been able to do that um, off the top of my head, anyway. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's pretty, that's pretty certainly. amazing, and in short, in a short space of time, in almost 18 months, yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. yeah, and coming from absolutely nowhere, and that was mm. we can maybe get to this, but that was the thing that particularly seemed to rile the music critics, and we haven't really touched on the fact that Gary was the absolute um, pariah. Pariah, thanks, Graham. Pariah. Yeah, he was he was treated as a pariah by the music press, not mm. least because he had completely bypassed the music press machine. Mm. And it's hard to picture now, but you know, back in those days, you know, the NME and yeah, sounds sa- and, sounds and rec- record mirror, mm. record mirror, melody, melody maker, maker. Melody maker. Um, they literally made or or broke. Well, bands they did in this landscape, at, at times. in the post punk landscape. Yeah, those yeah, yeah. magazines were the bible. I'm sure Yes and um, Wings and bands like that weren't yeah. too concerned with what e- uh, NME thought of them. But mm. as a band coming out of that period of in the, the post-punk landscape, if you didn't get the blessing, mm. let's say, of the important journalists and the right uh, magazines, you did nothing. And Gary Newman didn't bother with any of that and was subsequently mocked and derided, not the least of which for some of his opinions and things that he came out with. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but the music was derided, his image was derided, everything about it. But it was hard to deny the fact that it was mm. hitting big time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the fact that there was an obvious visual Bowie influence didn't help, but you know, people have always been influenced by other people and it wasn't mm. as if his music sounded really anything like Bowie's music, I don't mm. think. No. Um, I mean, there were certain similarities, but Bowie was doing something completely different. Well, by this point, Bowie was um, – we hadn't even done Ashes to Ashes at this point. No, so no, he was in his um, his he Berlin. He was in his Berlin phase Berlin still phase, there, yeah. yeah. But um, what was Cars the lead single off yep. the album? Right, so which was probably to this day his most well-known song. Yeah, yeah. With good reason. And apparently he wrote it in about 10 minutes. Yeah, He yeah. bought a bass guitar, went home, started playing the riff on the bass mm-hmm. and had the song knocked out in under 10 minutes. Yeah. Mm. And it's probably the song that still pays his bills today. Yeah, yes. yeah, definitely. And you have an interesting fact about cars. <laughs> Do I? <laughs> Is, isn't it the fact that doesn't he stop singing halfway through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the it's it's an extraordinary pop song, like hit single, where the vocal again a song without a chorus. Uh, the vocal stops about s- like seventy five seconds or something in, into the song, and there are no more vocals for the rest of the song. For the rest in of the song, like yeah. a number one single kind kind of song. And Gary has said how much he used to hate playing that song live because he didn't know what to do with himself for the last three minutes. <laughs> but wasn't that a lot of the reason why he'd sort of stand there looking kind of weird and yeah. staring into the distance because there wasn't anything to do yeah, except yeah, maybe yeah. a few hand claps? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But, that is, but the amazing thing is why didn't he put more lyrics in there? Yeah. Because he's Gary Newman. <laughs> Who knows? Thrash out a, gr- a, a huge guitar solo. Because there were no guitars on this album almost. That's, that's right. why. Yeah, so yeah, he yeah, made I, a, yeah, I don't think there were any guitars. He on. made a decision to ditch the guitars almost completely. For me, this is... Peak, as the kids say today, peak Gary Newman. Peak yeah. Gary Newman. This is the album, if you only had one, you, you'd have this. I mean, yeah, it's got airplane, it's got metal, it's mm. got uh, all kinds of things that people were influenced by. Oh, there you go, Nine Inch Nails covered one of the uh, one of the tracks off here. The hip-hop guys like Africa Bambada and, and people in the States really yep. picked up on what he was doing. Well, um, the song Me was sampled by Basement Jacks. Of 
for um, Where's Your Head At? Yep. That Where's was a big at? hit, which is which is a great use of it because it's a fantastic chorus. But once again, the songs are standard kind of songs if you strip yeah, them yeah, down. Yeah, that's right. They're just pretty simple. He's not yeah. a great songwriter, but he no. writes great songs and when he finishes them and treats them with what he's done, he's ended up with some amazing songs. Mm. And yeah, uh, yeah. definitely uh, the influences on here reach reach the crystallised sort yeah, of form, yeah. I think. Well, it's such a fully realised album in mm. a way that, say, Replicas, it's a little bit post-punky guitar at times. It's a little bit kind of ambient keyboardish towards the end of side two, uh, whereas um, there's there's an absolute uniformity, consistency of sound from beginning to end of Pleasure Principle. And as we were talking about, the absence of guitars gives it such a specific and unique flavour. And this was maybe a year or two before the fully electronic rhythm sections, drum, drum machines and bass synth sounds could be maybe sequenced as easily or as you cheaply had to play it all. as they yeah. could. Yeah, like 18 months or two years later, you had Depeche Mode and kind of bands that had the fully electronic rhythm section. But in 1979, uh, yeah, it was really tricky. Bands like Kraftwerk and, and one or two others were trying to do that, Human League in their early albums. But no one was really doing that very easily. And Gary had like quite a rock and roll rhythm section, mm. even on Pleasure Principle, which to this day, I think gives it a really fresh sound because it was a very short period of time in the early days of the affordability of synthesizers, but still needing to have a drum and bass rhythm section. So that only existed for a couple of years in the late 70s before the fully automated electronic sounds came in with you know, Depeche okay. Mode, etc. I'd also like to say he produced this album himself again, which is pretty yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and right. the bass on this album, very detuned, very chorusy and flanged. Fantastic bass sounds. Yeah. Like I, I've been listening to it again, and it it does sound amazing. Some yeah. of it, it's some really deep, low yeah. sort of notes, coupled with those heavy synth bass mm. notes. Yeah. It makes it very, very bottomy and growly. It, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's got a great sound. The whole album's got a great sound. Which brings us to the tour, Graham, because. I was the, just going to say, are we in the middle called, of 1980 yet? <laughs> let me tell you why. I Maybe I think it was that 1979 because it's called the Living Ornament 79 Tour and they were supported by OMD in the UK and OMD yep. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark didn't come out to Australia at that point. But we, uh, we both agree that we saw them in Brisbane. We did. At Festival Hall and the tour was something to see. It was my first proper gig as, as a young teen lad. Yep. Once again, I went with Curtis and it was mind-blowing because the stage show was fantastic. He had these sort of miniature robot things driving P around the robots. stage. Pyramids were they, yeah, with laser beams shooting out of them and it was a real show. It was really something mm, to see. It was this, probably the first show we would have seen like like a, a rock show. Like before then it was just bands. Mm. They may have been a bit of a light show or something. Yeah, it was a proper show. Mm. It's a lot of money been spent on. I'd never seen a rock show before. That was mm. my first gig. Uh, yeah. And and it was like the bar was set pretty high because the sound yeah. was incredible. We had second or th first row seats. Wow. And it was something else to, to a teenager in Brisbane mm. to see that. A fantastic night. And we, 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 we probably have to agree to disagree that it was 1980. I've um, well, <laughs> just pulled up a set list here. What, what's the date of the it gig, It was 1980. Right? Yeah, I know, but what was the month? Uh, May. May 1980. May 1980. Okay. And, and what, the, the set list I've got here, this is May 29, 1980, which is actually Capital Theatre, Sydney. They don't have the Brisbane one here for some reason. But, uh, yeah, it, it looks like he's playing... All the hits, but he plays an Eric Satie cover. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that features... Gymnopedi, which was the B-side of We Are Glass. Right? Yeah, later on, which is a great, mm. great song. In, I've been called it a song, great piece, yeah. classical piece. Yeah, I remember him playing that there, but he played... Well, did he play anything off the first album? Or um, only... Because only, at that stage, he'd only really had yeah, those yeah, couple of albums yeah. to draw on. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think he would have. Because there were he in the midst of all of this, he he did release um, the Living Ornaments '79 and Living Ornaments '80 um, as live albums, and they went to number two on the charts. Just you know, in the midst of all these studio albums, go, go to number one. And around about that time, he announced his retirement from touring as well. That's right. So he, at he, the age of like you know twenty two or twenty, I think he did three or four well, sold out nights at Wembley, like yeah. one after the other, and then basically said, "That's it, I'm done." 
Well, he was getting on by then, I think, you know. Yeah. I think it was about time he moved on. <laughs> he was. Have a, a bit of dignity about yeah. that. Yeah, he was well beyond his 21st. Can I just say that it says here on set list, there were seven songs from The Pleasure Principle, five from Replicas, but then it says two from Exhibition, two from Telecon, one from B-Sides, one from The Plan and one from Covers. So I'd, I'd, Well, I'd that's done. not possible because Telecon wasn't out. Well, how he did, he, he ended with We Are Glass. Really? And I Die, mm. You Die was there in the mix. It might have been songs uh, prior to Telecon coming out. Because We Are Glass was a single, wasn't it? And yeah. I remember that. Uh, yeah, cause, We, cause we Are I, Glass came out a few months before Telecon. Yeah, because okay. when I was a, a swimming pool attendant, I remember the guy I was working with loved We Are Glass when it came out, and that was nice. Did he retire after this tour or after Telecom? I thought it was at the end of this tour, but I'm, I'm, my memory may have me, well, I've got my ears mixed up there, but anyway. Yeah, I think I think he retired after Telecom. Right, which would have only been <laughs> yeah, <laughs> later like, that yeah, year yeah, or yeah. not long after. Yeah, like anyway. six, six months after. Right. Mm. Yeah, something along those lines. I thought the wonderful thing about the uh, the live show was he had four keyboard players. There was one on the left side, one on the right side, and then there was another two above that, above them, and there was these vertical blocks of lights that flashed, oh, yeah, that yeah. flashed on and off. Columns of... Yeah, columns of lights, and that's what was so spectacular about it because the light show was just amazing to watch. Yeah, there's some great footage on YouTube mm. for people who want to have a look at that. And the drummer was raised but kind of in the middle of the four keyboard players, and there was just Gary with a microphone. I think he played guitar a couple of times, didn't he? The drummer was Cedric Sharpley at this yeah. point, wasn't he? Well, Uncle Jess suffered from vertigo, so... You know, probably just as well. Didn't want to be on the drum riser. Drum kit. Yeah. That might have been the secret reason. The drum riser was a problem. He was better off in uh, Brock and the Badgers, I think, yeah. all things considered. <laughs> all right. Well, the the gig we saw in Brisbane, you didn't see this this particular tour, Patrick. No, I um Fans, I, was, the, I, I was in Melbourne at the time and I couldn't find anyone to go with me. And, you know, I was like 14, 15 or something. So depending on what, what year we've decided the uh, gig was. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't going to go by myself and yeah, no one else wanted to pay the, you know, 22 bucks, 50 or whatever but it was. You, you were keen, you were interested in going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's I would have loved to have gone, but I didn't know any Gary Newman fans at all. You knew n- no fellow Newmanoids. No. Had the internet existed, I would have set up a Facebook page specifically to wow. find a chum. Well, you missed out. I mean, Graham and I can agree on one thing and one thing only. It was a great show. Yeah. Um, yeah. We also, as you've said numerous times over the years. So thanks for the reminder. I've got photos as well. <laughs> um, James, a young fellow called James Freud was the support act yes. in Australia, um, James Freud and the Radio Stars, had been a member of um, uh, or the Teenage, Radio, Sean, Stars? Teenage, Teenage Radio, Radio Stars. Radio Stars or yeah. whatever, something to do with, with Sean Kelly and, and a few other Melbourne types, yep. Yep. Uh, had decided to go solo and uh, make his own way in pop, had his, had a, had his sort of semi-punk haircut, leather trousers, yep. Yep. had a song called Modern Girl, which I Fell in Love hit. with the Modern Girl, which was a yep. hit. Yep. Uh, so got got the support. He was poo-pooed by a large section of the crowd, as I recall at the time. Ah, that's interesting. Um, as a bit of a poser, yep. you know, a bit of a bandwagoner. Mm. Um, that being said, Gary was impressed with him. Yes. Gary yes. liked him a lot. Yes. Yeah. Well, Gary invited him over to the UK so that Gary could produce an album of, of, of James's. Right. And I think he stayed with Gary on his farm or... He did uh, the, the suburban house. Uh, yeah, so James flew over to the UK expecting the full kind of mansion rock star treatment and instead he was stuck in a caravan out the back of the family home. <laughs> and right. Gary was a teetotaler. He drank nothing but Coca-Cola and ate pretty much nothing but, but, but fish and chips and hamburgers and Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so James, who loved indulging in just every excess that was going, suddenly found himself in this kind of monastic environment um, where he felt embarrassed even to go out and buy like a six-pack of beer. <laughs> and he was terrified of a couple of huge dogs who lived in the house as well. So it was just this almost kind of cartoonish kind of surreal environment of the kind of young Aussie rock and roller, post-punk kind of guy who was expecting just, you know, yeah. every kind of in- indulgence to be the case. Uh, <laughs> you know, Gary's caravan buddy. Yeah, that's right. So he goes into the studio and James is thinking that he might be doing the album with his fellow teenage radio stars who are all really good musicians. And instead he ends up with Uncle Jess on drums. <sighs> 
um, and Paul Gardner, so like the mm. Gary Newman rhythm section, you know, which is a good thing, and his friend Roger Mason from Teenage Radio Stars on keyboards, I think. So it's a decent band, but I don't know that the chemistry was really there and James hated the album. Gary was recording, like put all the drum tracks down in about, you know, four hours and hey, that, that's mm. fine, let's move on to the next thing. And so, yeah, there was kind of no chemistry between them at all in the studio and James ended up hating the album. Gary ended up not liking the album and it's never been released even though the album is on YouTube. It's on YouTube now. So you can hear it. And you can um, indeed from beginning wow. to end. I had a listen today to a song James Freud did called China Crimes and I remember it live. Um, I was saying to Patrick before that I saw James Freud and his band probably about seven or eight times. I was a big fan and I, I saw them so many times and I remember them playing this song. So obviously what he recorded with Gary Newman whilst it wasn't released, a couple of the songs made it to the live set and you were saying Automatic Crazy? Yeah, I think, I think was, might have was, been released, was released as a single. As a single? Yeah. But um, it all came to nothing because James Freud, not long after that, sacked his band and joined the models. No, there was some some distance there, I believe, from yeah. 1980 to him joining the models. 82, Pro- I think he Probably a couple models. of years at least. He kind of disappeared yeah. and sort of was rumoured to be doing various things, but you didn't really hear anything of him for a while. And yeah. then he turned up as the bass player in the models. Hmm. A little while after uh, the second album had come out for the models, he he so he played on the third album, The Pleasure of Your yeah, Company. Yeah. Um, yes, so, so there you go. Interesting yes, side yes. note on Gary Newman's yes. influence uh, over James uh, Freud. This was in the midst of a period in which Gary had recorded Telecom. Which was, I think, another number one. Album. Three in a row. What, what were the singles of three this in album? a row? Well, well, this we, is where it gets we, contentious. This, this Graham. is interesting, Graham. I'm, I'm glad you are. So, so we are glass pr- preceded Telecom by about three months, three or four months, and the UK version of Telecom didn't include the single "I Die, You Die." Oh, okay. But international releases, certainly the Australian pressing, um, did include "I Die, You Die." And the single I Die, You Die did contain, or sorry, when when it was released, it did meet with one very pithy review in one of the music magazines. So it's I Die, You Die. It was a three-word review, which is You First, Gary. <laughs> so it was a little bit harsh, but uh, that's how the critics were, were, yeah. were treating him at the time and, and continued to, to do so. And I Dream of Wires was on this album. Yeah, it? yeah, okay. which Robert Palmer later did a cover version of. Not much album. later, probably. No, no, within like after. a year or two. Yeah. Um, but uh, Telecom, uh, the album, does feature not just James Freud on hand claps on the first track, This Wreckage. It also features Simple Minds on hand claps. Is that right? So All of them? There was a whole, there was a whole hand clapping thing going on. Okay. For Gary, he clearly didn't trust Cedric Sharpley on hand clap. Just to play not, hand clap. Not just anyone can hand clap. No, no, that's mm. right. So he needed all of Simple Minds, all of Simple Minds on board. Not just a couple of them. But um, So I don't know what you fellows think of the Telecon album, whether you have any thoughts about it. It was certainly a departure from the kind of popish pledge principle. There are, there are no obvious hit singles on it. All the songs are quite long. Mm. And yet it, it is quite a ponderous album in some ways. And yet went to number one. But I think he could have done you know, just about anything. Yeah, he, he was at that stage in his career where whatever he released at that point was going to do well. And it wasn't until people bought it and listened to it <laughs> that they thought, oh, actually, this isn't as good. Well, well it, was, it was never a favourite of mine, I have to no, say. No, this, this was the end of his machine period, as he yeah, called it. Yeah. So he'd he, he sort of had that run. And what was this, 1980? Yeah. Um, and the 80s had only just begun and he'd sort of already done it all in that short space yeah. of time. Um, so there, were, you, there were other electronic bands yeah, coming right. up at this point yeah, starting as well. To emerge, yeah. Yeah. So are you guys fans of Telecom? Uh, bits of it, I don't mind. I mean, I was probably starting to lose interest by then. I liked We Are Glass. I thought that was good, but it was kind of more of the same. Yeah. The sound had sort of started to repeat itself a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. going anywhere. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same. I think uh, I liked it, but, yeah, I think I preferred the pleasure principle. And as we've discussed in previous podcasts, we kind of move on to other bands. Yeah, yeah, that's and, right. And I think we probably lost interest at that point. And I think the songs just weren't as good. He may be run as... out. I mean, he'd been pretty prolific yeah. over the last couple of years. Um, was that the end of his uh, touring life? That Was yeah. that when he announced yeah. his retirement yeah, after that right. album, the end of 1980 yeah. or thereabouts, whenever it was? Yeah, that's he just, right. He did those sold out gigs at Wembley three or four nights in yep. a row and, and announced his retirement, which is a pretty grandiose thing to do. 
Mm. At the peak of your career. And then, uh, yeah, so that was, in a sense, the end of his golden run, mm. I guess. And then it must have been an interesting time for him to kind of go, okay, well, I've kind of done the robotic thing to death, so what's next? And especially as he's got so much more time on his hands because he's decided to, to give up touring, you know, forever. And James Freud's moved out of the caravan. <laughs> James Freud has gone home. <laughs> he's not paying rent anymore. <laughs> no, that's right. Which would have helped out. That source that's of right. income's dried up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the dogs have to find someone else to maul. <laughs> so then it's like, okay, well, what do I do now? And I think that, that what Gary chose to do next with the dance album was really interesting, that he decided to go a bit more rhythmic, a bit funkier, for want of a better term. And in order to achieve that, he got uh, Mick Khan from Japan on board to play bass, which completely revolutionised the sound. And well, he was free at the time because Japan had... Probably. Actually, it was it was, Japan it was around up? about the time that uh, Tin Drum was being recorded. Oh, okay. So this is 1981. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. That's right. So mm, yeah, that's what interests me. Like, uh, I hadn't really listened to this album until just recently, and um, I was amazed at how much like Japan it sounds. Mm, that's um, right. And so he was obviously uh, listening, uh, being influenced by other people at this point. So, uh, and that was a good thing for him, I think. Yeah. Well, I I think that um, parts of the dance albums, certainly the, the first four tracks, side one, are fantastic, and probably are my favourite you know, sequence of, um, of of Gary Newman songs. You know, out of his entire oeuvre, <laughs> uh, and yeah, and, I, and to me, they still sound really fresh and really interesting, and really, um, and he was very sure of himself. Like t- two of the first four songs on that album go for nine or ten minutes, and that can sometimes seem like an, an extraordinary indulgence. But to are me, the song titles similar in a similar vein? Cry the clock said no. Um, slow car to China. Slow, slow, slow car to, to China. <laughs> slow car to Japan. It's a very, very yes. slow car. Yeah. Maybe it's Japan. Um, so he, he had he abandoned. She, she's got claws. Oh yeah, that that wasn't a bad thing. Cedric was still playing drums, but but he got all sorts of other musicians in to play on the album. Nash the Slash played on... Famed violinist. Fact, Ro- Roger Taylor from Queen played drums on one song. Uh, there was one song which was Gary plus two of the guys from Teenage Radio Stars. Hmm. So Roger Mason and the bass player from Teenage Radio Stars, uh, okay. Mick Prague. Roger Mason ended up in the models too. That's right, yeah, he, as well later. as touring in Gary's band. Right. Yeah, it was. Uh, he was certainly branching out and trying different things. And you know, I think there are some songs on the dance album that aren't that great. In fact, the album contains probably my least favourite Gary Newman song of all time. Mm. What I'm going to call the worst Gary Newman song of all time. Wow. Which is Crash is is the name of it. Crash. Which yeah, yeah is just a pretty bad song. An with, abomination. Um, hmm, with a pretty annoying chorus and sounds as if it took even less time to write than Cars. And could have done with a you know an extra few minutes finessing. <laughs> and uh, what uh, sort of uh, commercial success did it enjoy? Uh, the album dance. Mm. It got to number three in the UK charts. Okay. And she's got claws was top ten the single. So he was still doing okay, but I think that was his last really big hit album. But I think the dance album sold a lot less than the previous two or three albums. So it things did, had moved on. Yeah, it did seem as if his his star was on the wane, and he kind of slipped. Away from the kind of zeitgeist, so he was he was absolutely cutting edge. You know, eighteen months earlier, was now it just seemed you know, he he had the kind of Frank Sinatra kind of suit with the you know the kind of trilby and, and and all that. That was his image, which was just a bit kind of out of whack with what was happening elsewhere. Unless he joined a ska band, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but he'd started kind of getting irritated with the New Romantics. There's a song on the dance album where he literally says, "The New Romantics are oh so boring." I could swear I've seen it once or twice before. I think that's literally a lyric on a song, a song <laughs> on dance. So he's not, it's veiled criticism, but it is criticism. <laughs> So I think he was feeling like his he he was um, having his thunder stolen yeah, by by these guys who, who were just new. So Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet and all those kind of guys who who were interested in fashion in the same way, interested in style in the same way that Gary was. But he was you know he was he was old hat now. He was old hat. How yeah. old was he at this point? Twenty three. Wow! Imagine <laughs> being washed up at twenty three. Yeah, that's right. But um, history records that he kept on recording, you know, an album a year for, for, for a long time after that, trying 
increasingly. Well, that's what amazed me about his his career is that I remember seeing, going into record stores and constantly seeing new Gary Newman singles, and I was wondering who's buying these things. Mm. It's like, you know, he and uh, it was always on Beggar's Banquet. Yeah, um, he must have had a great deal with those guys. Yeah, well, he t- he started his own label in maybe the mid '80s called Numa Records. Oh, okay, so maybe that was it. Maybe because he had his own label. Yeah, yeah. He was able to just keep keep releasing singles. But it was it was one of those un- unfortunate things that his hairline started to recede v- very early on, and it was hard to look young and sexy. Like it was, he, he looked, he seemed old hat enough just because he he'd had four or five albums and 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 he'd been around for you know fully three years for those five albums. Mm. So yeah, you don't want to be losing your hair at you know at the same time as that's happening. So. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was it, it was an unfortunate kind of juxtaposition, and he did, as as he says now, completely lose his way from Telecon <clears throat> onwards. So I don't think he particularly rates the dance album because I think he feels that he was trying to get into the kind of funky sort of stuff that, that wasn't really him. Hmm. So he feels like there's this 15-year period that was this lost period until he heard songs of faith and devotion, I think the Tepesh Mode album, and heard... Um, nine Inch Nails and suddenly kind of got, got back on track with a more the industrial. early 90s. Yeah, the yeah. industrial rock stuff that he does now, which is amazing. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that's that right. a lot of so, stuff of what he does now is really good. And I think he had started to be name-checked by the likes of Trent Reznor and started to be sampled by, by you know, some, some pretty cool people. Hmm. And that's when things started to turn around for him after a pretty dismal, you know, 10, 15 years. Well, you have to wait long enough for these things to come around again. Yeah. Um, for the nostalgia thing to kick in and for people to appreciate things a little bit. But, I mean, he's still playing that sort of industrial rock stuff now. Like we were talking earlier that he did a tour of the Pleasure Principle and played the whole album yep. five or six years ago, whenever it was, and then played the industrial stuff after that that he's doing now that yep. he obviously yep. really wants to do. Well, all three of us went to see Gary at the Enmore Theatre five, mm. five or so years ago mm. yeah. and... You know, I, I I thought it was a I thought I mean I'm a little bit biased, but I thought it was just a really good show, and with the kind of heavier stuff, the the, the modern stuff, working really um, seamlessly with versions of Our Friends Electric and, and and Cars and so on, like heavier, more kind of guitar driven, more rock versions of those early synth songs. But I thought it was a really solid show, and I, I was really pleased for him because you know I, he was just mercilessly uh, yeah, he, crueled by the critics over a long period of time for no real reason. I mean, you know, his stuff was perfectly you know respectable synth music in the way that you know Depeche Mode, for instance, didn't get the kind of critical mauling. That mm, Gary got. did, yeah. I don't, I don't know why they singled him out, but just, just because he had bypassed the system. So yeah, and he I was think, a Thatcher supporter. Yeah, we, we have. And he flew planes. Yes, he as did. A hobby. He did come out did as a things. Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's sympathizer at a time when it was deeply unfashionable. This was the time of the miners' strike, yeah. um, when the Red Wedge was, was happening, where bands the likes of Paul, Paul Weller, Billy Bragg, and so on were getting seriously into political agitation, uh, you know, like on a very practical level. Mm. And Gary, with his Margaret Thatcher's done a lot of good things kind of line, <laughs> uh, didn't, d- didn't didn't really sit well with didn't, everyone. <laughs> didn't sit too well. Plus, as you're saying, he bought planes, he flew planes, he flew a plane around the world, he flew. To Sydney, he flew to to Australia, wow. and uh, yes, yeah, so you know that was classic rock star indulgence, mm. as you know, as it was perceived. Didn't help his, did, did his case that, on a critical uh, level. Our friends Electric was sampled in a in a major hit single in England by Sugar Babes. Sugar Babes, yeah, a song called Freak Like Me. Yeah, yeah, I, that's. I think, um, I think that would have. Uh, well, Foo, Foo Fighters have done a cover of Down in the Park. Down in the park where the markmen meet the A lot of people have covered their stuff, as you said, Basement Jacks. Well, so, the, the, the Sugar Babes um, sample, that, that song I think went, went to number one. Mm, yeah. And um, Gary has gone on record as saying that he prefers the Sugar Babes version <laughs> to, to the original. I don't care what they say. And 
and he's he's extraordinarily generous like that. If you, if you yeah. see any interview with him from the last ten or twenty years, he is amazingly good-hearted and humble, and just takes no credit at all for for the influence he's had. He thinks every cover version that's ever done of his songs, or he seems to to act as if every cover version is an improvement mm. on his somewhat mediocre. You know, original versions, and he just comes across as an absolutely lovely bloke, mm, and yeah, nice. yeah just uh, really humble. And you know, I'm just really pleased for, for the success he's he, he's had now, and that has nothing at all to do with the fact that deep down, I was <laughs> and will always be a numenoid.